Well, hello, everybody. This is Pastor Greg and Pastor Chris coming to you with our weekly podcast during the coronavirus outbreak. And Pastor Chris, we had our first weekend of um, online service activity. How'd you feel it went? Uh, I thought it went well. Um, There's the side everybody sees, and then there's the side that Nathan and I saw. We were kind of scrambling. We had some camera trouble right before we started, but um, thankfully nobody noticed, and it seemed like things went well, and that's that's the whole goal. But this next week, we plan to have a less stressful Sunday morning ourselves. Well, I I didn't have any stress. I just had to get a sermon ready to preach, and then I had to preach it into a video camera instead of to people. So that was a little bit different. And it is amazing how um, self-conscious you get about certain things when you're doing it into a camera instead of to people. But we got a lot of positive feedback. Everybody seemed to be very happy with how the production of it went, and I think we're going to get better at that as we go. Also, wanted to tell everybody who joined us for the group chat, uh, that was awesome. Um, I, I was surprised by several things. One of them was how much our kids loved seeing each other. That was really encouraging. Um, if you're listening to this and you weren't able to hop on to our group chat on Sunday night, I'd really encourage you to do that. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Unexpectedly, I, I mean, I thought it would be fun, but it was really fun. And uh, I hope you'll join us. We made an announcement on Sunday night. Um, my wife and I wanted to announce to everybody that we're expecting. Uh, so we're expecting number five. And uh, if that's news to you, praise the Lord with us. We're just so grateful for this um, blessing in our lives. And uh, Danielle will be due in um, October, I believe. And so we're just uh, praising the Lord. I think before we go forward, I'm going to go ahead and put some claps in. If you could just say we're expecting one more time, and then I'm going to put some claps in. Go ahead. Okay. We're expecting. Perfect. <laughs> there we go. All right. A little a little um, self-standing ovation there. Um, well, hey, uh, as far as timing goes on this podcast, I think we're going to try to have this this uh, podcast run about a half hour while we answer your questions. Uh, the purpose of this is to answer questions that come up during your daily Bible reading, and this is one of the really cool aspects of doing our Bible reading as a church, is that if you ask a question, it's probably pretty safe to assume that other people had that same question. And so we had um, actually too many questions to answer in this podcast, so thank you. We had to be a little selective, and so keep those questions coming, and uh, hopefully you can uh, enjoy our answers to them. So I'm going to tackle the first question. The way Pastor Chris and I have arranged this is one of us is a little more prepared than the other, but at the end of the answer, we'll let the other pastor chime in uh, to fill out any um, of the answer they see fit. And the first question comes from Charity, and she was reading from Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, and the phrase that she said she didn't uh, said she wanted some help with was the phrase, fear him who can kill the body and cast the body into hell. In that context, uh, Jesus is saying to beware of the the leaven of the Pharisees. And, uh, you know, the Pharisees were breathing out all sorts of threats. They were trying to murder Jesus. They would eventually, you know, murder the disciples. And Jesus said, don't be afraid of those people who can only kill the body, but be afraid of the person who can both kill the body and cast into cast the soul into hell. So who is 
that person? Well, that person can really only be God himself. I think our translations may have helped us out a little bit more had they capitalized the pronouns. And so, you know, the the next question is naturally, so are you saying that we're supposed to be afraid of God? Well, yes and no. Um, Yes, in the sense of biblical fear. Psalm 111 verse 10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 and Proverbs 9.10 says the same exact thing. Fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what does that word fear mean? Does it mean that we're to cower and quiver? Well, certainly not. God invites us to come boldly into his presence. The The word fear here isn't so much afraid of, but more of the idea of reverence or respect or regard. A good illustration I heard of this one time is the regard that we have, for example, for a police officer. If you're speeding and you drive past a police officer, uh, you should be afraid. You're probably going to pay a fine. Um, If, however, you're in a scary part of town after midnight and you're feeling afraid of the circumstances and you see those blue lights turn on, you're actually probably feeling good at that point because you know you're going to be safe. Um, What the passage is saying is have a high regard, have a respect, have a reverential awe for God, so much so that it changes your actions. And so back to Luke chapter 12, we should have a reverential awe, a deep respect. We should regard highly the one who has authority over both our bodies and our souls. So I hope that's a good answer to your question, Charity. Pastor Chris, do you have anything to add to that? As somebody raised on C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, there's always the <clears throat> the illustration that comes to mind of Aslan, and I forget who it is that asks. I'm ashamed to say right now, but uh, they ask, you know, is Aslan safe? And uh, I think it's Mr. Beaver that laughs and says, oh, no, of course he's not safe, but he's good. And so there's this fear and this, you know, almost trembling as he comes, this reverence to listen to his words. And sometimes... To me, the word reverence almost doesn't quite have enough teeth to it, but it's closer than any other word in English we have. So uh, think about it almost as you're looking at God and you you take every one of his words so seriously and who he is so seriously that uh, you you bow before him and you always, you know, you come to him like that. Um, that ca- kind of captures the sense of it's a reverence with real um, majesty behind it that causes you to fall to your knees and uh, submit. Yeah, that's right. Well, that was a really good question, Charity. That's one we get pretty frequently, actually. Um, What does it mean to fear the Lord? So on to the second question. I believe Pastor Chris is going to tackle this one. Uh, So the second question has to do with a passage in Leviticus chapter 16, and uh, it references 16 verse 8, and I'll just read that passage here for you. It says, And Aaron shall cast lots over two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel, or Azazel. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that. I didn't look at the Hebrew. (laughs) Um, But that final word is actually used again in verse 10, and I think it's used in verse 16 as well, and it's used other places in the Bible as well. And you may know that you actually have a little note, footnote there, and mine says basically that the Hebrew is uncertain. Uh, This passage is talking about the Day of Atonement, this ceremony, uh, this most holy day of the year, this set-apart day of the year, Yom Kippur, where they would actually have this national covering of their sins. And so this is describing that scene, and one of these goats is sent out. And uh, 
before I get going too far, I thought I'd mention a couple resources I saw that came across just through email uh, newsletters I'm a part of. I saw that crossway.org um, is uh, giving you access, I think it's for 60 days or something like that, to the ESV Study Bible online for free. And I know the company that I do side work for, Faith Life, uh, has something similar where they have a lot of their books for free for the next 60 days uh, at connect.faithlife.com. And I know there's a lot of Bible apps that are offering free study Bibles, um, like Uversion, I think, is as well. So uh, this is a great use case for something like a study Bible to look at and say, okay, does anybody have anything to say on this? And uh, I don't want to get too far into the weeds about what this word could mean, but there there are at least four kind of plausible explanations. The two that probably have merit um, that are worth considering is uh, one of it. Uh, one thought is that that word is connecting kind of two Hebrew words and is describing what the goat is to do. In other words, uh, the the two words it's combining are essentially go away and goat, and so it's describing the goat going away into the wilderness. And um, that's one possibility. There are a couple others, but the other one that I think has some merit that I think is probably the most likely is it speaks of a location where the goat departed. And um, that thinking says that the word actually means something more like strong or fierce and describes the terrain where the goat is going, that wilderness area. And uh, so... There are a couple of possibilities there, but it seems the intention is still the same, that that goat is taking the sins and uh, basically suffering judgment and going out into the wilderness by himself. He's carrying the sins away, and it's this picture of God saying, your sins are being removed. And uh, when you read, especially in the Old Testament, God loves pictures, and uh, you can see why, because that image of this goat taking on the sins of all the people and then walking off into judgment by itself, taking them all away, um, is exactly what God was trying to communicate then. And uh, Jesus Christ has taken all of our sins away. And these kinds of word pictures for us in the Old Testament point forward to Jesus, uh, the one who would take all of our sins and not just cover them for a year, but who would take them and then sit down having completed his work, like the book of Hebrews says, and uh, so we can take great comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ is the one who made final and full atonement for our sins. That's an excellent answer. Um, it touched on all the points I was thinking about. Um, these Old Testament ceremonies, they were supposed to be uh, a picture of Christ's future atonement. And now we can look back on those pictures and go, wow, that's a that's an amazing picture that God was trying to paint for them and that he's trying to illustrate for us now of all the things that Christ does for us. In this Day of Atonement picture, one of the goats is sacrificed as a substitute for our sins, and the other goat is sent away. That picture that Jesus became sin for us, even though he knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, and now he has taken our sins away from us. He has nailed them to the cross. As the Old Testament says, he's put them as far away from us as the East is from the West. So the 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 picture there is not only of atonement, but of a, a literal separation between us and our sins so that God doesn't regard us anymore as sinners. It's a really beautiful picture of what Christ uh, would do in the future. I think it would have been really cool living as a first century Hebrew born-again Christian, because you would have lived through those atonement ceremonies, 
and you would have made so many more connections than we make now in the Christian life, simply because, you know, we read about them, but we don't do them. And doing them, smelling the smells, hearing the sounds, you know, that tactile experience would have so informed uh, your faith in Christ. And maybe when we get to the other side, God will let us experience some of that. This discussion about the law actually brings us to our next question, which I'm going to tackle. And so be forewarned, this is a hard question, and it's going to take me a few minutes to unfold it. And we got this question from a few different people, a few different forms of the question, but basically the same question. What is the role of the law for the New Testament Christian? One of the questions was, which laws do we have to obey? Which laws do we not have to obey? How do we know which laws we obey? So on and so forth. And that just raises the question, what is the role of the law for us today? Now, before I begin answering this question, I'm just going to say right away, there's probably, this is one of the areas where there's a lot of different opinions in biblical scholarship, a lot of different answers to this question. It was a fascinating topic for me when I was in school. Um, I could go on and on about the different theologians that believe different things. Um, so from this point forward, I'm going to give you my opinion. I think I have strong scriptural support for it, but just so you know, there are differences of opinion, and this is an area where good Christians uh, tend uh, to disagree with one another. But without further ado, what is the role of the law in the New Testament believer's life? The first thing I want to say is that none of the law applies to us. Now, you may have dropped your tea or whatever hearing me say that, but there's more than one part to this answer. There's three parts, in fact, and the first part is this, none of the law applies to us today. How is that? How is it that none of the law applies? Well, it doesn't apply because Christ fulfilled it all. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, don't think I came to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. Paul says in Romans 3.31, do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And how is it that we uphold the law? Well, he answers that question in Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let me read that verse again because it's so formative in understanding the law's role. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Well, how did Christ fulfill the law? How did Christ end the law? Well, Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse so that the promise of Abraham might be fulfilled. Christ came and lived out the law flawlessly. And then through the doctrine of, it's a fancy word here, imputation, or Jesus applied his righteousness to us, we deserved the curse of the law because of our sins, and he bore that. So Christ fulfilled all the law in his character, and then Christ allowed the punishment of the law that we deserved to be fulfilled on him, and thus he not only fulfilled the law, but he ended all practical use of the law, because the law points to Christ, the law prepares us for Christ, 
In fact, the law actually came so that sin might increase, not so that sin would decrease, but so that it would be a schoolmaster and teach us where we've fallen and prepare us to meet the Lord who fulfills this law and became the curse that the law prescribes. And so now Paul says, listen, guys, don't submit to any part of the law because the law meets its end in Christ. The law was to prepare us for Christ, and the law meets our end in Christ. You see, many of you may have heard uh, this answer, that the law should be divided into three parts, the civil laws, the moral laws, and the ceremonial laws, and that Christ fulfilled the moral law the and the ceremonial laws, and uh, and the civil laws don't apply to us, but the moral law still holds. The problem with that thinking is, of course, that the Old Testament doesn't make those distinctions. The, when Moses is writing the law, he doesn't say, now, everybody, I'm going to talk to you in a civil way, and you New Testament Christians who come down the line, you don't have to worry about these civil laws. That's not what Moses says, and that's not what Paul says. Paul says, all the law was fulfilled in Christ. And then he says, don't submit to any part of the law, because when you do, you can't pick and choose. This is in the book of Galatians. You submit to a part of the law in circumcision, then you have to come under the whole law, and you don't want to be under the whole law, even the curses of the law. You want to be in the righteousness that Christ provides for you. You want to be in the fulfillment of that law who is in Christ Jesus. And so later the Apostle Paul says, don't let anybody judge you according to holy days or Sabbaths or circumcision or any of these other stipulations of the law, because Christ fulfilled it all and made an end of it all. So that was the first part. Number one, none of the law applies to us today, because it was all fulfilled and made an end in Christ. Number two, are you ready for this? All of the law applies to us today. Uh, so you heard that right. None of the law applies. All of the law applies. The law applies to us in that it is a perfect reflection of the character and nature of God. Psalm 19.7 says that the law of the Lord is perfect, uh, converting the soul. Um Frequently in the New Testament, Paul appeals to the law as a reflection of God's character and nature. So, for example, he says in Ephesians 5.31, Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives as Christ loves the church. Loves, love your wives as you love yourself. Haven't you read in the law that two shall become one flesh? That's Ephesians 5.31. Paul says we can look into the law and see... God's intent. We can see God's heart and God's mind. We see the way God thinks about things. Or in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, children, obey your parents. Don't you know that was the first law that came with a promise? Or, for example, in 1 Timothy 5, 18, Paul quotes two rather random sections from the law. He says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and that was one law, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Therefore, he says, we should pay our ministers. We should pay those who labor in the ministry of the word and prayer. Paul is appealing to two 
rather disconnected portions of the law, but he says, can't you see that here in the law, we see the character and heart, the we see that reflected, uh, we see what God would want. So even though the law is fulfilled, there are certain ways that God thinks there are certain desires of God expressed in the law that still hold true today. So let me give a couple of practical examples. In Deuteronomy 22.8, the Israelites are commanded to build a handrail around the roof of their houses. They would commonly use the roof of their houses like like what we would use a deck today. The, The idea there is God wants you to take cautious measures. He wants us to be kind to others, and even in the way that we build our buildings, so that it's safe for our children, it's safe for other people to come to your house. Now, we get upset about that, right? Like, we moan and groan and grouse and complain about building codes. But I bet you, um, what was it, Wednesday of last week when that earthquake was rumbling, I bet you were pretty happy for building codes at that point, because... You don't want your house falling in on you. Well, those are the sorts of things that are a reflection of God's character and nature. He wants us to do things well so that it's safe and protective of others. So must the government make a law that we build a handrail? Well, no, I would say, you know, theologically, no. But would God want that? Well, yes, God would want something like that. Uh, And that's a principle that can be applied to many different areas of life. I'll give just one more very brief example. Um, The Israelites were commanded in Leviticus 19.19 that they weren't supposed to wear polyester. They weren't supposed to interbreed their cattle. They weren't supposed to uh, sow a field with two different types of crops. Well, all of those things are possible. We wear polyester. We selectively breed our cattle to produce the best beef. Um, people all the time put two different kinds of crops in their in their uh, plots so that they have something for the spring and something for the fall. So what we have to ask is, are, are, we, are we bound by those laws today? Well, no, I'm wearing a polyester shirt right now. So how do we apply that? Well, I think the principle is that God wants his people to be unique. He wants his people to be different from the world, even in the way they dress, even in the way they sow their fields, even in the way... They eat their food, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do. Don't do it to fill your belly. Do all for the glory of God. And so God wants his people to be unique. He wants them to be different. And that is, these laws uh, are a reflection of God's desire for that sort of holiness, that sort of set-apartness. And so I know that's a very brief answer to a, a tough question. If you have any other questions about that, feel free to call me or email me or text me or whatever, um, and I'm happy to fill that out a little further from you. But I'm sure that Pastor Chris also has a few reflections on this very challenging um, idea. Yeah, I'll be brief just because we're, um, obviously that was a long and extended answer because it needed to be, but I think one of the traps that it's easy to fall into here is to spend most of your time reflecting on how the law applies and to ignore what is painstakingly obvious this side of the cross and that is that our primary response should be to fall down in worship to Jesus because he took that law for us. And if I had to fulfill that law perfectly to be right with God, I would be the first um, to be cast away from his presence. And so I think our primary response should be one of worship. 
and to let the academics only further enhance and inform that, the kind of careful study to only further enhance and inform that worship, rather than uh, the thought process and the nuances of it being the focus and uh, worship of God being a, a, a distant afterthought. Absolutely. Um, you know, when we read the law, and this is a, an answer to a question I posed, I think, on Sunday, why why do we have you reading sections of the law anyway? Well, we have you doing it for a couple of reasons, just to see the heart of God and see these pictures, for one, and secondly, so that when you come to the New Testament, you have a greater appreciation for Christ's fulfilling of those meticulous demands. And so it's meant to be, it's meant to help you see Christ and appreciate him even more in what he's done for you. Well, I believe we have one final question, and Pastor Chris is going to tackle that one. The next question I've got here is on the parable of the lost sheep, and Jesus mentions uh, the 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance, and the question is, doesn't everybody need to repent? And uh, that's a good question, and uh, I just have a, a couple of statements to make about that. The first is that Yes, God does command everyone to repent. Uh, Mark 1 actually opens with Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, and that's a universal call, a universal proclamation to repent and believe. And uh, Acts 17, Paul actually says God, he commands now everyone, everywhere to repent. So yes, God does command everyone to repent. But it's clear that, number two, the scribes and Pharisees assumed that they were the righteous ones. And um, one writer put it like this, he said, they would have naturally assumed that they indeed were righteous and did not need to repent. And this attitude uh, manifests itself later on in the book of Luke, in chapter 7, just a little bit later in the passage, Simon the Pharisee doesn't consider himself to be a debtor. And in chapter 18, there's this Pharisee and a tax collector, and it's clear by the Pharisee's prayer that he definitely does not see himself as a sinner. So, they clearly did not view themselves as needing saving. They viewed themselves as righteous. And that seems to be the point that Jesus is driving home while simultaneously driving home the point um, that those who know that they are in need of help, he's there to help. Jesus often uses this kind of irony. Uh, Mark 2, Jesus speaks about those who are sick, and he says, I came for those, not for those who have no need of a physician, even though it's clear that Everyone has need of a physician in, in Christ. He also says in that passage, uh, once again, I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And again, that sense of irony is there as well. Sometimes that kind of irony surfaces in the way that Jesus speaks, Jesus speaks with others. And one of those times is in John chapter 9, which I think has to be one of my favorite scenes in the book of John, where there's this blind man who's been healed by Jesus, and he has this conversation back and forth with the scribes and Pharisees, and he's constantly being asked who Jesus is. And as the passage goes on, this blind man continually sees more and more about who Jesus is. And at the very end of the passage, Jesus essentially says, he was blind and that's why he sees. And he kind of leaves it hanging. And the Pharisees pick up on what Jesus is saying, probably for the first time, even though he's used this kind of language over and over again. And they say to him in uh, John 9 verse 40, are we also blind? And they, for the first time, it seems, caught the irony. Oh, he's speaking about us. And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So, yes, everybody does need to repent. And uh, we all must repent. 
that's the first beatitude. That's the entrance to hearing the message of Christ, that you have to be, the word is destitute in spirit, totally bankrupt. Paul himself says that his good deeds weren't just neutral deeds. They were actually negative. They were uh, losses for him. They were marked down as uh, expenses. Isaiah speaks the same way when he says that if you're trying to earn righteousness with your good deeds, those good deeds are like filthy rags. They're not good deeds that Christ has to add to. They're actually debts that Christ has to pay off. When Jesus here says in Luke chapter 7, when he says that, I I came and I came to call those to find those who were unrighteous, he seems to be trying to make a double point. One being, I've come for you. You who know you're unrighteous, I've come for you. And he seems at the same time to, with irony, be making the point to the Pharisees, you are included in that group. You're included in that number. Jesus often astounds us with the way he interacts with others, and this passage is no exception. Jesus seems to be doing double the work in a single statement. And uh, so, yes, we all need to repent, and Jesus' point is just that. One of the things that the New Testament writers do, the apostles try to do, you know, I frequently run into it as a pastor as well. We all tend to minimize sin. We all tend to reduce sin to something that's very hard to commit. Um, but the the New Testament writers, part of their job, it seems, was actually trying to convince us that we're worse off than we think we are. And they're telling that to Christians, uh, not to unbelievers. So, for example, in First John, we're told that if anybody says they have no sin, that's a sin. That the, He is a liar, and the truth of God is not in him. He said, well, I didn't do anything wrong today, so I mustn't have sinned. Well, no, um, that's not the standard. Um, Romans 3.23, a verse we all know, says, For all have sinned, and how have they all sinned? And have fallen short of the glory of God. Um, have you fallen short of God's glory today? Well, of course, we all have. Then we've all fallen short, then we've all sinned. And that should really cause us to cry upward in a really needy way, even after the cross. We should marvel that Christ would give us the righteousness of God, that Christ would continue to forgive us. Um, But we shouldn't reduce sin to a simple act. Sin is so much bigger than that and so much worse than that, And Jesus and the apostles who came after him were constantly trying to get people to see just how deep the die went, as it were. And um, we ought not reduce sin to just an act. And um, that's definitely what the Pharisees were doing in this passage here. And the Pharisees are reflecting something that we think often in our culture, even as Christians, we primarily think about sin as being against a law code. And that's not the way the Bible speaks about sin. Sin is, of course, breaking the law, but it's much more than that, much worse than that. The reason that even one sin has eternal consequences is because of who that sin is against. And that seems to be the primary focus of the way the the Bible talks about sin. Sin is against a person. It's against God. And it's because of who God is and his nature, the, the eternality of his nature, the grandeur, the splendor, the glory of his nature, that when you sin against him... Even if it's the smallest sin imaginable, it has infinite weight. We understand that even today in the way that we think about sin. You know, to come up and strike me on the face would be rude, but I'm not going to send you to jail for it. But if you did the same thing to a police officer, you should have much higher uh, consequences. Or 
uh, greater still if you did that to the president. Uh, again, you would have even greater consequences. And yet a president, a police officer, they're, they're just people. They, they actually share the same nature, the same basic makeup. And so you can imagine how the smallest of sins against an infinite God requires infinite and eternal punishment. And so the gravity of sin, the sinfulness of sin in the Bible is tied not to the, the horribleness of the act, but the person against whom the act is committed. That's a really great point. Uh, Pastor Chris, the sin, the the depth of the sin is defined by the person that we're sinning against. And, you know, um, the Apostle Paul was hurting Christians, and Jesus said, you're sinning against me. <laughs> uh, David committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed Uriah, but said, against you and you alone have I sinned. And we, we need to remember that, that our sin ultimately is against God and um, he is eternal, and we need an eternal redeemer to buy us back, to save us, to be the curse of the law for us. Well, hey, in these last couple minutes here, um, wanted to just ask Pastor Chris a question. I got a question for Pastor Chris. What have you appreciated about our churchwide Bible reading plan this year? Uh, I think the fact that it's manageable has been helpful because I, you know, a lot of times going through a Bible reading plan, I have to kind of crank away on a certain day, or if I get behind, then I really feel pressure. Whereas even if I happen to get behind a couple days, I can catch up. And probably the more helpful thing, though, has just been I can really slow down when I read because I only have a few passages to read. And um, I know you probably don't read it on the email, but I've also liked that. (laughs) My wife loves listening to it. And uh, I think the thing I've enjoyed most about it is the participation we've had. A lot of people are doing it, and it's been fun to interact with our people because we're reading the same thing, and uh, that's been sort of an unexpected blessing from it for me, Um, just being able to interact with God's people with these words, and I I hope this podcast today has been helpful to you. Um, I hope we've answered uh, the questions that you've submitted. If we didn't get to your question this week, that's okay. Resubmit us another one. Uh, for next week or as long as this coronavirus outbreak lasts. And um, pray for pray for our church body. Um, Pastor Chris, I want our people to pray for me. I've been bummed the last couple days, and um, I, want, I want to um, have the joy of the Lord restored to me, uh, even in the midst of this coronavirus outbreak. Well, I'm sure getting some sun, too, will be nice since it's been a little overcast, and I, I know Greg Baker doesn't like those days. No, <laughs> not at all. Well, hey, thank you for listening. If you've made it this far, you are a diehard, and I commend you. Um, hey, have a great day. Lord bless, and we will see you virtually on Sunday. <laughs>